Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The city of New Haven is known for activism and focus on social justice issues. How did a protest there 50 years ago against the federal government and its targeting of Black Panther Party leaders affect the city's legacy and disparities that still remain in New Haven today? Coming up, we hear from Kurt Schmoke, the former Baltimore mayor and a Yale student during the May Day protests in 1970. The events that led up to that day involved a murder in the Elm City and what my next guest describes as the political trial of the century in New Haven. I want to welcome back to the show on Zoom, Paul Bass, editor of the New Haven Independent and co-author of Murder in the Model City, The Black Panthers, Yale, and the Redemption of a Killer. Paul, welcome back. Good morning, Lucy. It's so nice to hear your voice. Nice to hear you as well. I wanted to start off by playing a clip by Charles Quinn, who was reporting for NBC News back on May 1st, 1970. For days, the city's been filled with rumors that gangs of extremists were coming to New Haven, bent on violence and destruction. More than half of Connecticut's 700 state troopers were ordered to the city. They were kept out of sight, far from the downtown area. The Connecticut National Guard was also mobilized. In addition, 4,000 paratroopers and Marines were flown into military bases not far from New Haven. They were not used. The National Guardsmen were also kept well out of sight. After the rally started, some units were quietly stationed along side streets near the town green. Most of the demonstrators never knew they were there. And that audio from the Vanderbilt Television News Archive. So hearing this clip, Paul, describe what New Haven looked like on that day. Well, on May 1st, 1970, New Haven in a few ways, not some important ways, looked a little bit like May 1st, 2020. It was a ghost town. Stores were boarded up. People were staying home or leaving town. And there was this feeling, this ominous feeling in town that something terrible might happen. And yet there was also going on amid that, that um, feeling among some people that society was at a turning point and that we could find beauty and meaning in, amid tough times. Now, obviously, I was discovering the describing the coronavirus, which is a very different situation. Back in 1970, New Haven was having a rally to support Black Panthers who were on trial in connection with a murder that had taken place in the city. And I do believe it was the civil rights trial, the political trial of the century. We had the Cinque Amistad trial in the 1800s. And this one really was framed as whether it was possible for a Black revolutionary to have a fair trial in America. Hmm. Now, if that took place at a different time, it might not have caused as much Hmm. attention. But this was also a time when American society was torn apart. Mm -hmm. We were now in the sort of twilight of the earlier phase of the civil rights movement, where people felt that despite progress with voting rights and desegregated lunch counters, which is, you know, very, very important, that there was a limit to how much society was going to change and there were deeper 
underlying injustices. And then there was big debate on what next steps are. Mm -hmm. And the Black Panthers were one group that were in the lead of that discussion. So when this murder trial was taking place, it got national attention about whether it was gonna be a fair trial. In fact, I was just looking up the number because I had forgotten it, just to pick jurors for this trial. They had a question over a thousand people over 17 weeks. It was a, a record in Connecticut because there were such strong biases mm -hmm. in the community against the Panthers. And so groups that support the Panthers said we're coming to town, mostly white groups, saying we're gonna burn down New Haven. Mm -hmm. Yale canceled question classes, people, board up the shots, despite what that news report said, people saw tanks in the streets. Mm -hmm. The National Guard's person I spoke to remembered how scared he was because he heard that they were going to shoot people. Um, and really what happened at Jackson State University a couple of days later at, at Ohio, at Kent State University mm -hmm. in Ohio, was believed to be the plan for New Haven. National Guard people were told if they shot an unarmed protester dead, they were going to not get in trouble which is what happened in those other places. I guess from the research I did on the book, I kept hearing about this trial, being a reporter in Avon for 40 years, this becomes the thing you hear about has a legacy that touched everybody in our community. And we still talk about what it means, but a lot of secrets came out over the years mm -hmm. since then. Secrets about how the FBI through a program called COINTELPRO, counterintelligence, was breaking the law to try to prevent any, what they, what J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director called the black messiah any leader of color had to be stopped from succeeding, even if it meant death, mm -hmm. and that there were illegal means used to prevent that from happening. So in New Haven, for instance, there were a lot of uh, COINTELPRO papers I obtained that showed that they were trying to get Panthers to kill each other, mm -hmm. which happened. So Go then ahead. for this trial, the reason it caused such attention was that the people who actually committed the murder were caught pretty fast. Two of the three of them confessed the third was convicted. So under any other definition of a murder trial, this was done. But because of the government's desire to take down a dissenting group, they put two leaders of the party, national leaders on trial, to, seeking the death penalty with little to zero evidence they had anything to do with the murder. It wasn't even claimed that they were present. And so that's what unfolded, but mm -hmm. to be fair, that was the moment. and. I have a theory that I hope our other guests will see if they contradict. I believe that at a time when so many conspiracies were taking place in American society, that the real conspiracy was that groups that did not agree about how to function in society, the New Haven police that had a red squad illegally wiretapping people, Yale University, the Black Panthers, Black student groups that had their own concerns we're secretly meeting to try to stop the Nixon administration. And Paul, we're going to talk what more about uh, Paul. We're going to talk more about uh, what was happening uh, that day behind the scenes. Also, Yale's role, including the president at that time. But fill in some more details for our listeners. You had mentioned this murder that happened. Also, putting uh, two leaders of the Black Panther Party on trial for that murder, despite there being a lack of evidence. Tell us more about those people, because one of them we'll be talking with soon, Erica Huggins. Right. Well, I'm a little worried about time constraints here. What was compelling to a lot of people was how the party was even getting started. It hadn't been around that long in New Haven at that point. It got formed in February of the same year. New Haven was later to have a Black Panther Party because we had so much anti-poverty money flowing that people were kind of sedated by it. 
But um, Erica Huggers came to New Haven to bury her husband. Her husband was born in New Haven. His name was John Huggins. He was sort of one of those, one of those young people, people thought were going to go do great things in life. He was a Black Panther shot dead by a member of a rival Black nationalist group in L.A. in a shootout by someone who was working with the FBI. Erica Huggins, young woman in her early 20s, comes to bury her husband. And she had been arrested after her husband was murdered. And she comes to start a chapter. And then one day, a few months later, in the basement of an apartment complex called um, Ethan Gardens, which was one of those idealistic model cities programs, a, a, a tenant co-op. In the basement, this kind of like wild guy from New York who'd been kicked out of the Panthers, brought back in, brings someone who says, here's a spy. And it was kind of believable because I've learned in doing this book that half the members who attend meetings were spies. I've talked to the spies. I've talked to people before the spies. It was true. But part of the insidiousness of that kind of government program is you never know who the spy is. So everyone is suspect. So they tortured and killed this guy who everyone immediately believed was not a spy named Alex Rackley. And that was the murder. The police department knew they were killing him. I've talked to the guy who gave the car to the Panthers who was working as a spy. Mm -hmm. The police chief at the time wrote about it. They claimed they lost the car when it was driving to a swamp in Middlefield. And they shot him dead and left the body. And then the next day, they raided the Panther headquarters in the middle of the night. One cop went immediately to where a recording of a torture session was kept. So they knew about all that in advance. And that became the case. Bobby Seale was the national, one of the national leaders of the party. He had been in New Haven giving a speech the weekend at the, at the time when the murder occurred. He was at Yale, but he had never actually been physically present or involved in anything that involved what was happening with this, uh, with the victim of this murder torture. So that's what, um, mm. that was the backdrop. So at the time, the FBI under Hoover were really worried about a, a violent revolution by the Black Panther Party in America. At the same time, radicals worried about a silencing uh, dissent. Again, uh, the tension that built up uh, because of this uh, murder trial, as well as what was going on in the rest of, of the world, including a very unpopular Vietnam War. You mentioned just a, a few days later, uh, the students that were killed at Kent State. Uh, with me today, Today on Zoom, Paul Bass, editor of the New Haven Independent and co-author of Murder in the Model City, The Black Panthers, Yale, and the Redemption of a Killer. We're going to be speaking with Erica Huggins in just a couple of minutes. Uh, briefly, Paul, how did this trial end? Well, first, I got to tell you that Bay Day did not turn into the bloodbath. Some right-wing groups mm -hmm. did come into town. The Nixon administration said John Dean. There was a bomb that went off at a rink but didn't kill anybody. But the trial was interesting. In the end, it was a mistrial. Most people were gonna um, were gonna quit, but there was someone on the jury who wasn't. Who later, Erica Huggins' attorney, who's now dead, told me that Erica Huggins had warned against putting this person on the jury. And um, so it was it was a mistrial, and the judge who had a, a past of making racist comments and was friends with the prosecutors came and ended up being very sympathetic to Bobby Seale and Erica Huggins, and concluded that the government had overreached. And he actually said they've done enough time and they were freed and it was considered a great victory and too much than we time and going now. But what, what I think, I know we can talk another occasion. I think there was actually a feminist component to this. Mm -hmm. I think that there was something about this trial that showed that uh, male overreach 
was called out and kind of had something to do with the acquittal, but it's a long story on its side. <laughs> Again, uh, Paul Bass with us here on Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to hear from Erica Huggins. Again, uh, she was put on trial uh, again in 1969 after uh, the murder of a Black Panther named Alex Rackley. We're going to hear from her, and we're going to find out how the struggles involving race and justice then are still relevant in America today. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel, broadcasting remotely. We just heard from Paul Bass about the events leading up to a very tense and angry day in New Haven in 1970. The Connecticut National Guard and other military were called to the Elm City. The same tension was brewing in other parts of the U.S. On May 1st, 1970, riots were expected in New Haven, but they never came. We're going to hear why that was. But before, let's talk more about the anger uh, from protesters that stemmed from this murder trial of two individuals in the Black Panther Party, a co-founder, Bobby Seale, and the leader of the party's New Haven chapter, Erica Huggins. Uh, Erica Huggins joins us now via Zoom. Erica, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Lucy. Thank you for having me. And Paul Bass, again, is still with us, editor of the New Haven Independent and co-author of Murder in the Model City, The Black Panthers, Yale, and the Redemption of a Killer. Uh, so, Erica, it was interesting uh, researching uh, for this show. Uh, some of us, including myself, not alive at the time when uh, the Panthers were really uh, gathering and growing in the late 60s, early 70s. They were known in popular culture for their militancy, and they used the Second Amendment uh, to advance their goals, to confront political police violence. What drew you to the party? Love for the people in my communities drew me to the party. Mm. Um, I didn't come with anger. Um, I do think, though, that if people are treated in a way that is inhumane, it's fine to respond in, in defense of of their humanity. And by that I mean that the programs, the community survival programs that the Black Panther Party started, there were 65 of them over the years. Um, the very first being the, the monitoring of police mm -hmm. abuse and the second and most popular one, and one that I worked with closely, the Breakfast for Children program. And so um, the violence that I experienced growing up and as a young adult, which drew me to the Black Panther Party, wasn't coming from my communities. Mm -hmm. So, but let, Lucy, if you don't mind, I wanna just um, say thank you to all of the people who showed up on that day mm -hmm. and every day, as a matter of fact, during the trial to support Bobby Seale and I and all of the other people who were standing for what is right and humane and just. Mm -hmm. And I recognize and have so much gratitude for the fact that 
I am one of many. So many of the people who were rounded up in these conspiracy trials and arrested and incarcerated didn't still have not seen the light of day. Mm-hmm. And I am so grateful that I am able to be with my children and um, with the people that I love. So I just wanted to say that. Mm-hmm. And I hope also, though, that I answered your question. Well, it's uh, good to talk with you, Erica Huggins. Uh, I wanted to learn more about the time that you came to Connecticut. It was a traumatic time in your life. Uh, Your husband, John Huggins, uh, again, he was a leader in the Black Panther Party, I believe in Los Angeles, was killed. You had a young baby. You came to New Haven uh, to bury him. I believe he was a native of New Haven. What was that time like for you? I was brokenhearted. And I, I, another gratitude is to um, Elizabeth and John Huggins Sr. for welcoming me into their home when I came. I was in one moment on January 17, 1969, um, when my husband John Huggins Jr. and Al Prentice Bunchy Carter were assassinated. This too was orchestrated by the FBI's counterintelligence program, as Paul explained. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I came in that moment on that day, I w- became in one breath, a single mom of a three month old, the baby of John Huggins and mine. Mm-hmm. And I became a widow and I was 21. So I was grieving when I got to New Haven. I did not come to start a chapter of the party. I came to be with family and to be with myself. Mm. However, that that grieving process um, was paused when members of the black community in New Haven and Yale students asked me if I would stay and start a chapter of the party, and I said yes. Mm-hmm. And so what were some of the programs and initiatives that, that you uh, started or, or tried to begin uh, in New Haven uh, once you were welcomed into the community? Well, we were, um, and I really was welcomed, and it was very healing. So there were a group of uh, Bridgeport, Hartford, New Haven, um, young African-American people who joined the party. And also we were connected with party members in Boston and in New York City and other locations as well on the East Coast. But the programs that we wanted to start were the Free Breakfast for Children program and a People's Free Medical Clinic. And we didn't get very far. You know, I came in January for John's funeral, and um, then we began in February. And then in May, Mm -hmm. we were arrested for conspiring to commit murder. Mm -hmm. 
And um, when I say we, there were a huge group of us arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but those were the programs that were dearest to my heart. And we wanted to do that. In addition, we wanted to be of use like we had been in LA. In the LA office, people came to us for everything. Re-entry from prison, um, finding out about veterans' rights as you know, Vietnam vets came back. Um, we even worked with the Black Police Officers Association in Los Angeles. We answered questions about um, how people could get services. And we talked to people about their own family needs mm-hmm. and education and so on. So the Black Panther Party was demonized. And that was partially to do mm-hmm. with the way in which the FBI was intending, as the mission of COINTELPRO says, to neutralize mm-hmm. us. And COINTELPRO, again, was the FBI counterintelligence efforts uh, used uh, legal measures, again, to surveil uh, members of the Black Panther uh, Party. Uh, you talked about uh, what it was like uh, to be rounded up and arrested, uh, many of you uh, around that time. There was a lot of fear and paranoia before that. That's what led to what happened with, to Alex Rackley? What led to Yes, and what led to Alex Rackley's death was the fact that the FBI, in collusion with the New Haven Police Department, orchestrated it. And um, I can only say that there were so many agent provocateurs and informants, operatives of the FBI, involved. Mm -hmm. And... I didn't know Alex Rackley before the day that he was pushed in through the front door by another man who later became state's witness, um, who loudly declared that Alex Rackley was an informant. I could see in this young man that there was nothing about him that would bring harm. And by the way, Lucy, there isn't a day that goes by that I do not think of Alex Rackley. Mm. Erica Huggins is on Where We Live. Uh, She's an educator, human rights advocate. She was a member of the Black Panther Party from 1967 to 1982. Also with us is Paul Bass, editor of the New Haven Independent, co-authored Murder in the Model City, The Black Panthers, Yale, and the Redemption of a Killer. Paul, I wanted to bring you back into the conversation. Uh, Give us some more context to to what Erica said about the FBI and New Haven police being involved uh, when Alex Ratley was murdered, about the informants and others who were in this as well. Yeah, so during COINTELPRO, it really wasn't an operation that was just to monitor a spy, as you said, Lucy, that was Mm -hmm. part of it. Mm -hmm. But they actually had an extensive program of creating problems with the hope of violence. So in New Haven, I had hundreds of pages of FBI documents that showed that they would, they actually tried to teach each other how to sound black. I mean, it would be funny if it didn't involve a death when they write these false flyers, they put flyers up in the black community about how dangerous the Panthers were. They wrote letters from one Panther to another, pretending that they, male Panthers, that they had had 
someone had cheated on the other one's girlfriend and had sex with them. In New Haven, COINTELPRO worked in concert with local police department red squads, and that meant the intelligence division of local police departments would share the information and coordinate. So in New Haven, we had um, a police office that no longer exists on Court Street, where there were four machines working 24 hours a day illegally recording the phone calls of people. It actually started in the 50s to monitor bookies and political radicals, but turned to be all about the radicals. And in the end, there was a lawsuit, a federal lawsuit that the city lost and had to pay people out, where they believed that the most people were monitored illegally per capita in New Haven than any other city in the country. And they also, there's a guy named Kelly Moy who still lives in New Haven, who was one of the people sent in by Nick Pastor, who ran the intelligence division, to check out the Panther meetings. And then when the Panthers were going to take Alex Rackley out, they called Kelly for his car. He said, hold on, I'll call you back. And he called Nick. I got this from both Kelly and Nick. I was in the kitchen together. And he said, Nick, should I do it? I think they're going to kill him. And Nick said, give him the car. Mm -hmm. And then they had three people in cars, police department, waiting and watching them as they drove out. I mean, so it was deep. It was Mm -hmm. was war. And, um, you know, when we look back in history, a lot of people are skeptical that there ever could have been. Because the other thing that was going on at the time is that worldwide, more than 50 colonialist governments have been overthrown by liberation movements. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for us to get in the frame of mind of people back then. But that was a time when there was a belief that very intelligent people believed that that could happen here. Mm -hmm. So that was the whole context to that. Um, The other thing Erica brought up, the other thing that strikes me 50 years later, so I read a lot of Black Panther newspapers from New Haven at the time when I was doing the book, and I came to realize that a lot of things I cover in New Haven every day for 40 years were actually issues first identified in those local newspapers. We write a lot now of Black Lives Matter, police misconduct. Mm-hmm. They really were the first to monitor what police did and talk about the power of just watching. Mm-hmm. They, they talked about sickle cell anemia before people did. We just opened the Michelle Obama house in New Haven, the first in New England, um, about drug abuses toll in the community, hunger, we now have free breakfast everywhere, and the role of women in social movements and in families. So it's kind of interesting to look back at that legacy that mm-hmm. way. Uh, Erica Huggins, uh, we now know, and Paul has also told our listeners, again, the government did not have evidence uh, that said that you or approved that you and, and Bobby Seale were involved in this conspiracy to murder Alex Rackley. Uh, this trial did center on the fact that he was murdered. He was a young man who uh, Black Panther Party uh, members interrogated, tortured, eventually murdered. Again, your voice was on uh, these tapes, also interrogating this young man at the time. Looking back, again, you were a young woman. Uh, you had just lost your husband. You had a young baby. Uh, you were working within this party to make a difference in the community. But looking back at those events, uh, what are your regrets? You said that there's not a day that goes by that you don't still think of him. Well, first of all, there are a number of things I, I would like to say. One is that I came grieving the death of my husband. And it wasn't a rival gang uh, or rival organization that assassinated John and Bunchy. It wasn't the Black Panther Party that orchestrated any of that. 
nor members of it. But there was so much infiltration. And I want to say that that infiltration existed in New Haven. So at the time that John and Bunchy were killed, that would be Al Prentice Bunchy Carter. Um, I was aware that something bigger, something more powerful was at play. And that same, I had that same feeling in New Haven. We were all, Lucy, held hostage in that house. And so, though I didn't know Alex Rackley before I met him that day, when somebody brought him to that house, someone I did not know, someone who I don't believe was healthy or well at all, someone violent in a very direct way, and especially with women, um, encouraged me to do what you mentioned about um, interrogating Alex. We were all at the whim of this man who never once um, was kind, especially not to women. And then the trial itself was very male-centered, sexist, and sometimes misogynistic. Mm -hmm. By that I mean when I was on the witness stand, I was badgered. And the judge, who, as Paul said, who became very gentle and kind, um, could see this and stop the district attorney and asked if I wanted to take a pause. I thought that was humane. Mm. I was being badgered about, not about Alex Rackley, but about being a woman, about being a discredit to my husband. And I was asked how many sexual partners I had. Do you see? I'm trying to let you know that this was deeper than anything I could have imagined. When you were on that uh, witness stand again, uh, being grilled uh, by prosecution, uh, as you mentioned, uh, asking those kinds of questions, did you think that at the end uh, that you would ever get a fair trial as a woman? No, I did not. But thank goodness for another gratitude for the legal team that supported Bobby and I. Charlie Gary and a very wonderful local attorney with national impact, Catherine Rohrbach, Katie, who became my friend during those two years. Um, She was one of the only people I could see regularly other than my baby daughter brought to visit me for one hour every Saturday by um, John's mother, Elizabeth Huggins. So that legal team um, became my way, my voice. So Katie being the very strong and powerful attorney and great human being that she was spotted it immediately. And, um, and also I told her what it was like to be in that house held hostage by this 
unfortunately unhealthy man. I don't know who he worked for. I wouldn't call him a Black Panther Party member. So um, that, you know, I just wanted to say these things because I'm the one who was there. This this is a part of my life. Mm -hmm. This isn't just, you know, me reporting. Mm -hmm. Um, So the day, the days that, um, the days after I, the mistrial and I was able to walk freely, Bobby Seale was not. He was handcuffed and extradited to Chicago to stand trial, that horror of a trial where he was bound and gagged for wanting to defend himself. You're hearing Erica Huggins on Where We Live uh, via Zoom today. Uh, She's an educator and human rights advocate, also a member of the Black Panther Party from 1967 and 1982. Paul Bass is also here, editor of the New Haven Independent and co-author of Murder in the Model City, The Black Panthers, Yale, and the Redemption of a Killer. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, this is Where We Live. Now that we understand more about the trial of Erica Huggins and Bobby Seale, which led to the widespread protests, what prevented the violence from breaking out on May 1st, 1970 in New Haven. Yale University played a big role. We're going to hear about that and talk to former Baltimore mayor, Kurt Schmoke, who was a Yale student at the time. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're looking back to May Day, 1970, with my guests, Paul Bass, editor of the New Haven Independent, co-author of Murder in the Model City, The Black Panthers, Yale, and the Redemption of a Killer. Erica Huggins is also here, an educator and human rights advocate, a poet. She was a member of the Black Panther Party from 1967 to 1982. Uh, Paul, I wanted to go back to you. So let's again talk about this Yale's role in helping keep these protests from boiling over. Let's start with Yale president at the time, Kingman Brewster. What do we know about him? So Kingman Brewster was an upper-class patrician Republican who was in a fight with other members of his class against the Nixon administration about the future of the Republican Party and the university. So he had opened Yale's gates to African-American students, reluctantly for women, but more enthusiastically for African-American students to try to say it would be more of a meritocracy. And Nixon and his vice president Agnew hated Brewster. And Brewster made a comment when they decided to suspend classes at Yale and open the gates of the university when protesters came. They said that uh, they started attacking Brewster. Brewster said I, he had questions about whether a black revolutionary could receive a fair trial in America, which became the distillation for America of what was at stake. They found out that at Harvard, there had been a rally with white radicals in support of the Ranthers a week before, a couple weeks before that, because they had closed gates. So they said, we're going to invite everyone in. But I don't think it was Yale that gets the credit for stopping the violence. I think it was Mm -hmm. a group of organizations that really united in a common interest, despite disagreeing with each other. Secretly at night, while during the day, Jerry Rubin and others were trashing the Yale president, while the Yale police were illegally wiretapping the Yale president. The Black Panthers, the Black students, the Yippies, 
And the mm-hmm. Yale people were meeting secretly at Kingman Brewster's house mm-hmm. to try to figure out how to stop violence on May Day. Bobby Seale from jail made a recording that said this is not the right time for violence. The black community in New Haven was very concerned about violence, asked people to stay home or had monitors. And then when there were moments when real violence could erupt, Doug Miranda, who was from the Black Panther Party, drove a car around into the crowds with Bobby Seale's voice saying now is not the time to commit violence. At one point, a person who was widely believed to have been infiltrated tried to get a crowd to attack the police. There was a little bit of tear gas and everyone ran into old campus while Allen Ginsberg chanted OM and they wiped their eyes. So they had to, their little bit taste of revolution. But as I said, Lucy, what really mm-hmm. didn't happen and I think was supposed to happen, happened at Jackson State University and at Kent State mm-hmm. where unarmed protesters were shot dead. I think, I believe, and this is just a theory now, okay? I gave you facts before. My theory is that the real conspiracy was the Black Panthers, Black students, Yale University, and even the police, who in other moments of the day weren't working together, stopped the Nixon administration and white motorcycle groups that did come to town and may have been responsible for bombings at the new politics corner in Ingalls Rinks from turning New Haven into a bloodbath. Mm-hmm. And may they became, for us locally, memorable, but nationally just a footnote mm-hmm. at a time. And the other thing we forgot to mention, Lucy, was the night before May Day, um, it was revealed that we were starting to bomb Cambodia mm-hmm. illegally. And that obviously upped the ante among people who were protesting. Thanks for the context of Paul Bass again. Let's hear from one of the Yale students at the time who helped keep the peace. Joining us now on the phone, Kurt Schmoke, former mayor of Baltimore. He's currently the president of the University of Baltimore. Back then, he was a member of the Yale class of 1971. Kurt, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, We heard uh, Paul talk about uh, the Yale students uh, that helped uh, keep the peace. You were one of them, one of the black student leaders who became an important voice on campus during that time. Talk about your role uh, that day and how uh, you were able, again, uh, to keep it peaceful in in the Elm City. Well, I think uh, uh, Paul touched upon uh, some important facts. Uh, the the student reaction varied. You know, we had students who were fearful and left campus, uh, went home really for that weekend, but many others stayed and wanted to convey a message to those who were coming into New Haven that uh, we were going to welcome them, that we were going to be accommodating and not confrontational. Um, we also had uh, some support from the Yale uh, faculty uh i think i i mentioned or maybe it wasn't mentioned before that i was able to speak uh at a uh a yale faculty meeting uh that that's an unusual thing to happen in fact i'm told that that was the first time that a student spoke to a full faculty meeting but they responded uh pretty well by conveying a message of support for mm-hmm. the students and so that helped us as we uh thought about ways in which uh, we could be accommodating to those who were coming into uh, into New Haven. Kurt, what did you tell the faculty at that meeting? Well, I told them that uh, the student reaction was mixed and that we were looking to them as leaders, that they were the institutional leaders and that other people, uh, you know, adults like uh, the President of the United States and some others uh, had failed in their moral leadership uh, role, and we simply asked them to take a stand. 
uh, which they which they did, and uh, that uh, really uh, helped a lot of students in terms of our reaction to uh, those who were coming into. Uh, uh, into New Haven. And I'll just give you a quick example. Um, uh, a year before uh, this uh, incident, I and a number of other students had proposed the creation of a child care center, which uh, the university didn't have at the time. Um, uh, we were doing a lot of work, and then we noticed that uh, a lot of these demonstrators coming in actually had little kids, so we converted our residential college, uh, Davenport College, to a daycare center for the period of that May Day demonstration and the day before and the day after. So that's unlike some other universities that would have, you know, the thought of converting a dorm or the residential college to a daycare for protesters, mm-hmm. you know, wouldn't have uh, been acceptable, but it was acceptable here at Yale. Uh, when May Day finally came, what are some of the memories that stick out to you that day? Well, uh, one of the real striking uh, memories for me uh, was uh, when National Guard troops uh, came in and they were lined up along uh, uh, York uh, Street. Um, a number of students, uh, I included, went over to talk to them. And I just remember the, the how young uh, these guys were, that um, they really didn't want to be there. Uh, and uh, we made a decision to try to be as uh, welcoming as we could under the circumstances. But uh, that really struck me, the, um, the age of those uh, guards. And then uh, the other memory, of course, uh, Paul made reference to, um, uh, uh, tear gas on the uh, uh, that was uh, uh, launched on the uh, old campus. Uh, that uh, was kind of a strange memory of somebody sitting there reading poetry while there's tear gas around, but mm-hmm. that actually occurred. Uh, Kurt Schmoke, we've mentioned earlier on the show, just days later, uh, four unarmed students were shot dead by the Ohio National Guard at Kent State. Looking back, uh, a sense that things could have really gone differently if you and others hadn't worked really hard uh, to keep the peace. Absolutely. Uh, When I think about it, uh, you know, I do think about Jackson State and and Kent State, Mm -hmm. uh, the things that uh, occurred there. And uh, I know that a lot of work, uh, some that I was not even aware of because there were a number of uh, uh, African-American students who were working in the community. I was working mostly in the university uh, to help uh, uh, make sure we had a a safe environment, but other students were working in the community. Um, So we we were just very fortunate uh, that we had um, leadership from our president and the faculty, uh, uh, students and and others, and even even the campus police uh, were uh, accommodating. So that was stand in stark contrast to what happened at Kent State and Jackson State. Well, I want to thank Kurt Schmoke for joining us here today on Where We Live. Again, former mayor of Baltimore, currently the president of the University of Baltimore. He was a member of the Yale class of 1971. Kurt, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Uh, we just have a, a few minutes left here on where we live. I wanted to live. Uh, wanted to go back to uh, Paul Bass and Erica Huggins, who are still with us on Zoom. Uh, looking back at this time, Paul, and all the reporting that you've done, uh, not only on this particular story, but so much about New Haven. What is the legacy of May Day and the Panther trials that happened in New Haven back then? I guess I boil it down to 
we can have justice. It's really hard. Mm. It takes a lot of work and you're up against a lot. And that ideas are powerful. When people really think about back that appear in New Haven, when they think about that period, especially people I know in the black community, the idea of pride, of standing up for yourself unapologetically and demanding justice is such a powerful message and that it survives some of the toughest times we can live in. Mm. Erica Huggins, I, I believe you went back to California after this period uh, was over. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, what you see today when we think about how systemic uh, racism still continues, still structural issues around our country. Again, uh, people are still protesting when there is police violence against unarmed individuals. We still see the effects of mass incarceration. How do you reflect on all this? I, I reflect on it every day, Lucy. However, I, I do so with something that I learned when I was incarcerated, that my attitude toward all of it has to be uh, focused on uplifting people who um, may be suffering with all of this information, this daily information. And um, before I for forget, I don't want to forget, I want to thank Kurt Schmoke for being there, doing what he did in New Haven on May Day, but also for all of the work he's done in his life. Mm -hmm. So back to your, um, your, your question about now, one of the things that I remember being on trial in New Haven, particularly during the jury selection, is that the United States was on trial, that there are systemic inequities that would have been there since the inception of the United States, and they haven't been, um, these systems haven't changed. They, they haven't transformed. They have changed incrementally. I think that what we see, for instance, now that the news has given us, because of community support, what really happened with Ahmaud Arbery mm -hmm. as an example. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry that he is just one of the many, but no person should have to exist in their own neighborhood and be in fear of their life as they're running, as they're walking, as they're living. And so once again, we have an opportunity now that we're slowed down to look at these systems and not just complain about them, mm -hmm. but offer our individual humane support in some way that works for all of us. Um, it will continue to exist. Um, dismantling systems that do not support humanity is a long-term endeavor but we have to be willing and not just wait for someone else to do it. 
I want to thank Erica Huggins for joining us here on Where We Live. Again, she's an educator, human rights advocate, and a member of the Black Panther Party from 1967 to 1982. Erica, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you very, very much, Lucy. Also, Paul Bass was with us, editor of the New Haven Independent, co-author of Murder in the Model City, The Black Panthers, Yale, and the Redemption of a Killer. Paul, as always, we thank you. Thanks, Lucy. It's always an honor to come on with you. And if you want to know more about this time period we talked about today, it's hard to do it in 49 minutes. You can check out the podcast Revolution on Trial. It explores the history of the New Haven Black Panthers. It's a co-production of Art Space and the Narrative Project hosted by Mercy Quay. It's available today wherever people get their podcasts. You can also download Where We Live on your favorite podcast. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Test Terrible on the phones. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. We hope you have a good weekend. <laughs>